Please stand for the scripture reading. Today's text is Psalm 122, verses 1 through 9. Um, If you do not have a Bible, you may help yourself to a Bible that's in front of you, in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you're using that Bible today, we're on page 297. So Psalm 122, verses 1 through 9. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, and was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is God's word. Thank you, Gloria. Let's pray together. We stand in awe before your word, O God, knowing that it is life to us, that, God, we would be hopeless and without instruction that is necessary without your word. And so, God, we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that um, by the power of the word, you would draw us together in deeper fellowship, Lord, and that we would understand the truth of that fellowship, Lord, that it's not just social engagement, but, Lord, it is a, a deeply spiritual sharing of life together, Lord, in which we are enriched, in which your gospel is proclaimed, in which we are edified and discipled towards greater faith, greater conformity to your image. We ask all of these things, God. God, I ask that you would assist me in the preaching of your word, that none of my many weaknesses would uh, pollute or corrupt what you have written in the word, but that I would speak clearly and accurately and and precisely uh, as to the message that you've given us through this psalm. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. One th- you can be seated, sorry. <laughs> One thing that we failed to mention or didn't mention, we didn't fail to, we just didn't list it, uh, is that we still want to mention to you that beginning next week, and uh, by the way, this, this matters because it has to, a lot to do with what I'm going to share with you this morning, but the, uh, beginning next week uh, and following on the 19th as well, we're going to be having uh, an opportunity for you, if you've been at Northridge for some time and are ready to go to another uh, level of commitment, we're, we're starting a, a uh, class for people who want to be members of Northridge Life. We call members around here covenant partners, and um, so we would love to invite you to do that. If, you, if you'd like to be there, we're going to have child care if you need that, and so just let us know that you're going to be there, and we'll make sure that you, uh, you are on the list and we get you all the resources you need for that, that group, and it's a lot of fun. We always have a good time with that, and so um, we... Uh, uh, you know, we'd love to encourage you to be there. Just see me after the, after the service. Um, and I mention all that because we're continuing our journey as worshipers uh, through what the Bible calls the Songs of Ascent. It's this collection of psalms, from 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalms 134. And it, it, as it continues, here in Psalm 122, we learn an important, uh, uh, actually a vital fact about the journey that we're on, this journey 
of faith, this journey of worship, this journey of discipleship, we learn a very important thing, and it is this, that this journey has never been meant to be a solitary journey. It's always supposed to be something that we do engaged with other people. Um, It's become, probably over the last 70 to 100 years, it's become part of the popular vernacular for us in church settings to speak of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But what I want you to know is when we emphasize the personal aspect of that relationship, the Bible paints a different, far more corporate picture of what the Christian life is all about. Let me give you a quick example from the book of Titus, a little tiny book in the, in the New Testament. And Titus 2.14, Paul is writing to this man named Titus, and he says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, this is very important, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is often repeated promise all throughout the Old Testament, mentioned many, many times, that God tells us that in the new covenant, they will be my people and I will be their God. Notice he doesn't say that that will be my person. He says they will be my people. He speaks always in this corporate term. People will say oftentimes things like this. I hear this. I've heard it since long before I became a Christian as my parents were raising me in church. I'd hear things like, if I had been the only one, Jesus still would have died for me. Now, that is a nice thought. It's a very sentimental thought, <clears throat> but it's, a hardly, it's hardly a biblical thought. And I'm sorry if by saying that I'm blowing up somebody's theology. It's, just, it's hardly a biblical thought. Why do I say that? Because God has revealed to us in his word all through the Old Testament and confirmed in the New Testament that he always had a plan to purchase for himself, not a person, but a nation, a kingdom, he says, of priests, to our God, a, a, a collective, a, a, a kingdom, a nation. Does that mean that he doesn't care about you individually? Not at all. But, but he's, he has saved you. He's brought you in to be something so much larger than yourself. It's a distinctly American thing for us to overemphasize the individual and to, and to neglect the body, the, the kingdom, the, the collective that we're a part of. If if only, this is what I want you to say, please don't throw rocks yet, hear me out. If only one or two of you had been redeemed by Christ's work, it would have been a cosmic failure. Now, why do I say something so contradictory to what you've heard all your life? I say that because from Genesis to Revelation, if only one or two of you had been saved, it would have made God's word completely untrue and unreliable. But God decreed a different result through Jesus's work long before the beginning of time. He he, uh, portrayed for his people that something much different than one or two would happen. In fact, look at how the Bible, the, uh, the Bible itself, at the very end of the book, look at how the Bible portrays the end of our story. Not the beginning, not the middle, but the very end of our story. Look at what John, he's on the Isle of Patmos, And and in Revelation 7, 9, he's having this vision of heaven. And he says this, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God has always envisioned the great success of everyone that he died for being redeemed in the end. And so instead of our, our, our insistence on thinking of Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, which, by the way, are words never once found in Scripture, the Bible describes him as the eternal king of a vast kingdom. So Christ died and rose again, not just to save you individually from hell, but as, as, even though that is a great byproduct of your salvation, he actually died to make you a subject of that kingdom we're describing, to make you one member of a body among many members. Whether you're a nose, an ear, a foot, or a hand, he made you, he made you another member of that body that has many members. He made you a part of a royal priesthood and an end-time multitude that no one could ever number, the Bible says. And all of this is important all of this is important. And the reason I'm making this heavy emphasis, you know, against thinking of personal relationship with Jesus or if, if I had been the only one and all that stuff, uh, it's important because we must have a high regard for God's decrees and God's plans. Job, after all he went through, said this in Job 42.2. He said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So when we think of salvation as applying only to ourselves, it's a, it's a vain imagination because God has purposed something completely different and we get to stand back with awe at the grace of God that has accomplished what God has purposed to do. And so we see this corporate reality that I'm trying to convince you of. We see this corporate reality in the beginning of Psalm 122. If you'll notice, if you just read the Psalm through again real quick, you would you would notice almost immediately that all, almost all the pronouns, except for two places where it says I, um, almost all the pronouns are plural. He talks about they and us and our. It, it speaks of the tribes and the brothers and the companions, all of these groups of people. There is no absolute no thought. We've been imagining this, this journey as a journey, as, as travel, uh, to the heavenly Jerusalem. And there's absolutely no thought of solitary travel in this psalm. The psalm begins with a shout of joy, uh, uh, of someone, uh, the, the, a shout of joy of belonging from someone who has been brought into the company of the people of God to join in this worshiping throng that are going up to Jerusalem. This is cause of great rejoicing to be included for this psalmist. Look, listen again what he says. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, I want you to imagine what is happening here. The joyful worshipers are making their way to Jerusalem and they see this fella standing all by himself and they, they shout out to him, come with us. Go with us. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to worship and sacrifice. We're going to the very house of the Lord. He would be included, not excluded. And being in the holy city and in the presence of God with all the other saints was his highest joy. 
And all of us, I want you to know this. Why does this matter to us? What happened thousands of years ago in the Psalms? Because all of us are on the journey of faith right now. Because someone said to you, come and join us. At some point in your history, if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, someone said to you, come and join us. It may have been a parent. It may have been a Sunday school teacher. It may have been a treasured friend. It may have even been a pastor. That does happen every once in a while. But somebody told you the story of Jesus and invited you on faith journey. And man, how I wish that I could just hit the pause button on this message and stop and go through every aisle of this place, every row, and hear those stories. The person who invited you, I know that that would be so encouraging to me to hear how the Lord worked it for you to hear that invitation. Come and join us. But it would also give me reason to pause again and reflect on this question. Who am I inviting on this journey? Who are you inviting on this journey? Who, in the, in the annals of heaven, who is going to rejoice because of your invitation? Who's standing before the throne of the Lamb will say, I was glad when they said to me, let's go, let's go. See, church people, and this is so sad, it's heartbreaking to me. They often have a reputation, a greater reputation for trying to disqualify people from traveling on God's highway. We put up these unauthorized toll booths of morality and religious ritual to block the way of the most needy, the ones who most need to be traveling towards the heavenly Jerusalem. And other times we keep people out not because of morality or or religious ritual, but because of things that are much more selfish, to be honest with you. It's because of our fear of rejection or our fear of being branded some kind of weird proselytizer. Or even more shamefully, sometimes it's just our sheer apathy or our indifference about the perishing souls of men and women. And I'm, I'm just telling you, we desperately need, and oh, how desperately do we need, a grace-filled generation with hearts ablaze with love for the Lord to rise up and to say to our friends and our neighbors and our family and our co-workers and the people we go to school with, come and go with me to the house of the Lord. Come and go with me. Join in this happy procession of praise as we approach the heavenly Jerusalem. But first... Before we can do that, we have to know exactly what it is that we're calling people to. What are we inviting them to join us? Where are we inviting, taking them? Where are we taking them? Is it a church building like the one we're sitting in right now? Is it an actual physical place somewhere on the earth? Is it a church service? I've told you this story before, but it's absolutely true, 100% true. When I was a kid, um, my parents, mostly to... Uh, Rain in my rambunctious character would tell me in, in order to instill some sense of reverence, they would tell me, you know, uh, to behave myself because this is the house of the Lord. Now, I was a young child. I mean, I probably was four or five when I remember them telling me that, and it blew my mind. I believed that this was the Lord's house. And in my 
childish imagination. I imagined him doing all kinds of domestic things like I saw my mother and father doing when no one was looking. And, and, uh, and it, it kind of blew my mind. But the scriptures I want you to understand say something completely different. And if I may, something different, but also way more glorious. If you look at First Peter rather 2, verse 5, you see Peter's description of what this house actually is. It says, the first two words are critical. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, the Jews had an actual physical temple where they brought their actual physical sacrifices when they worshiped there three times a year. It was a very special place because there God's manifest glory dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant. But the modern church building, the places where we gather, I want you to hear this, whether we uh, dwell in a one-room meeting house out in the country or or attend a one-room meeting house out in the country or the grandest cathedrals of Europe, they are not the equivalent of the temple in Jerusalem. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. I am extremely grateful. Some of you who are here long enough to know the story of how we got this place, I'm so grateful for a building where we can meet to worship. But at the end of the day, at the end of time, more accurately, this is just brick and mortar, carpet and drywall and paint. It's just a building. If this building has any sacredness, if it has any sanctity, it's because of what we, the gathered saints of the Lord Jesus, do here. Because now, without the gathered saints, without the people of God, this building has no meaning whatsoever. Because Peter just told us that God's glory now does not dwell in a temple in Jerusalem. It dwells in us, his people, through his Holy Spirit, who is the seal of God's promise of eternal life. Paul actually made this this statement with almost shock to to the Corinthian church. He said, don't you know, don't you get it, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not the building, you, you are. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? It means that right now, while you're sitting here with all the other saints, the Holy Spirit is here gathered, but guess what? Tomorrow morning, y'all are going to have an alarm clock go off. You're going to get up, you're going to take a shower, and you're going to go to work wherever you work. And guess who's going with you? The Holy Spirit is going with you. Because you, my friend, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So David, further in the psalm, he describes the holy city and its temple. And in so doing, he gives us an accurate picture of how we experience God's glory in the new covenant through the church as opposed to the temple. Listen to what he says, verse 2 beginning. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now, as a kid, again, I'm giving you all my childhood stories, but as a, as a kid, um, one of the places, this more as a teenager, one of the places 
on the face of the earth that I enjoyed going more than any other place was Six Flags. I loved going to Six Flags. Every year, our youth group had made an annual trek up there um, to you know, spend way too much money to get way too hot and have too much fun. And so we, we would go to Six Flags, and I enjoyed riding the roller coasters. It seemed like every year they would uh, debut some new ride and crazier than last year's ride, and, and I loved it. I, I could hardly wait to, to receive all the promised thrills that the new ride offered. And I remember for days before our uh, trip there, I would, I would have this just incredible sense of anticipation, remembering the last year and thinking about how much fun it was going to be. And I would, l- would lay awake. I couldn't even sleep. I was so excited. And in my imagination, what I want you to understand is I was already there. I mean, I could, I could smell the smells and hear the sounds and, and see the sights. I, I was there in my mind. And so when David says, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, most of the commentaries uh, that I have encountered feel like the pilgrims had not arrived in Jerusalem yet. And what are they saying? Our feet are standing there. We're already there. They, They hadn't arrived there, but in their anticipation of the glories of the temple, they can almost taste it. Can anybody relate to this kind of sensation? Like I'm describing Six Flags, David saying about Temple. I, I, I'm almost there. I can, I can just taste it and sense it. Now this, why is this important? Why is this just not a factor in the psalm? Because listen to this. We're talking about the church this morning, corporately the church. And this may be hard to, for you to believe, but God's intent for the church was that it would be an imperfect foretaste of the glories of heaven and of the new Jerusalem. Now, you might look around here and say, if this is heaven, <laughs> if this is heaven, but you're missing the point of what, what Jesus has constructed here. He made this to be a foretaste of what that place would be like. Yes, it's imperfect. We know that. We appreciate all of you who send me emails to point that out. We know it's imperfect. But the life of the church, absolutely in the mind of God, should act, should mirror the activity of heaven. Let me prove it. So in heaven, we will be gathered together in unending worship for all eternity. In heaven, we're going to stand in awe of the revealed glory of God as he thunders forth his word in perfect proclamation. Let's call them sermons. It, to the praise of his glorious grace, he'll, he'll, he'll proclaim his own goodness. In heaven, we will enjoy uncorrupted fellowship with all of God's people from all times and all places. See, the church, similarly, is a place for gathered worship. It's a place where God's word, like it is right now, is proclaimed. It's a place where we have fellowship and we edify one another. We encourage and strengthen each other. And so let me boldly tell you that if you don't like the church, you're going to hate heaven. Because what the earth, on the earth, what the church is imperfectly, heaven will be perfectly and in fullness. It'll be a greater expression of what Jesus is building here. Next, I love this, David says that Jerusalem is as a city that is bound firmly together. Now, most of your Bibles, maybe in the study notes, maybe in the back, will have a map of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Not the modern city, but the ancient city of Jerusalem. And as you examine it, you're going to notice that the city is surrounded by walls. 
And what does that mean? It means that you can't expand out past those walls without putting yourself in imminent danger. And so this means that there were no wide open spaces within the old city of Jerusalem. It was, it was bound firmly together. The old King James says it was, it was a city that's compacted. The houses were built right next to, and in some cases on top of each other, within those walls. The streets were narrow. The residents in ancient times lived in very close quarters. What we often do here in Texas would seem very strange to them that we build a house in the middle of a pasture and we might go decades without meeting our neighbors. That was not the case in ancient Israel. They, those people were intimately in, uh, acquainted. God's idea for the church is that she would be bound firmly together not with wide open spaces and great distances between ourselves, but bound firmly together. Romans 12, 15, Paul is giving instructions to the Roman church and he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What is he saying? He's saying, share in the same emotional experiences that they have by by your empathy and your, your sharing life together. He goes on to say, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Do not be arrogant or proud is what that means, but associate with the lowly. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6 that we ful- the way we fulfill the law of Christ is by bearing each other's burdens. And we can't realistically do that if we keep each other at an arm's length. The best churches, in my humble opinion, the best churches are messy. I like messy churches. They have little polish. And the reason that they're messy and they have little polish is because the people of those churches seem to be more willing to get into the muck of life with each other. And that's the kind of church that I hope that we can be. David tells us that Jerusalem is a place where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Jerusalem was the destination for every Jew who feared the Lord, no matter what tribe they were from. If they were from Judah or Ephraim or Benjamin or Manasseh, they, they all made their way to, the, the, uh, to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, this was decreed by God, as it says here in the text, because he chose this place as the place where his name would dwell, allowing Solomon to build him a temple there. The tribes of the Lord, of, of Israel rather, were, un, were unified as one nation. Many tribes, one nation. But they were also unique among themselves, each tribe. Some lived in the mountains, some lived by the sea, some lived in the desert. They had different roles in the nation. They had different lineages. After, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had different lineages. They had different stories. They had different purposes. But what united them, what made them all one, was their pilgrimage of worship. They would all make their, the same journey to the same, uh, to make the same sacrifices at the same temple. That was the unifying thing about them. David points out also a really important fact. He says, there the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. They are the tribes of the Lord. He alone is the Lord and the King of all of the tribes. And it would have been a grave sin for any of the tribes to craft their own religion though some of them obviously later did just that thing. The New Testament church, the one that we participate in, also has tribes, different things about our tribes that we notice. Some of us have 
different worship styles. Some of us may not interpret every theological position the exact same way, but all who repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation are ascending the same spiritual mountain and offering praise, worship, and submission to the same God. We're often, as I said earlier, more aware of our differences than we are of the things in common. We've taken to very infrequently here uh, reciting with you guys the historic creeds of the church because we want to be a church that emphasizes the things we agree on. And I'm not suggesting for even a, a second, if you know me, you know me, you know this well about me, I'm not suggesting that we compromise with rank heresy or give it a pass, but but what I do want us to realize is that none of us knows everything. Can we just acknowledge that, that not every one of us knows everything about every theological thing? Most of you didn't raise your hands. So I'll talk to you about pride here in a little bit. But um, none of us knows everything. But the gospel is essential. The things that are essential for a man to be saved, a woman to be saved, are clear to us, revealed in Scripture. And if we agree on those, there's nothing more that we need in order to welcome other believers with a heart of fellowship. It would be a grave sin for us as well, uh, as well as the tribes of Israel to despise the other tribes of the Lord because of second or third issues of disagreement. We must not forget that we are all the Lord's tribe. And one thing I know about the Lord is he has perfect power to correct them and correct us as he wills. But notice the unified purpose of these tribes of the Lord, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The Bible says this was decreed for Israel, that they would give thanks to the name of the Lord. True worship identifies true belief. You can argue with me about theological points all day long, but what I'm looking for is people who, who with a heart of sincere and genuine faith, worship the Lord. True worship identifies true belief. No matter whatever else we uh, disagree about, let us all be united in the humble worship of our God. So lastly, in this section, David says that thrones for judgment have been set in Jerusalem in the courts of the temple is where judgment was pronounced on those who broke God's holy law. It was where people were held accountable for defying God in open rebellion. The church also has to be a place where God's law is proclaimed and never downplayed. Sinners should never be comforted in their sin in the church by promises of, some, of a false God who just winks at our rebellion. Because God is holy and he's a righteous judge and it's malpractice of the highest order to not tell people of that reality. People have to know that there is a holy God who will hold them accountable for the lives that they are living. Um, they have to know that for, the, for the, the fact of their unbelief and not trusting in Christ. But that's not where the text ends, and for that I'm thankful. The text also says not only that there's thrones set in the house of the Lord, but the thrones of the house of David have been set in Jerusalem. Though the church has to declare the righteous judgments of God, we also must make known, and it's more important that we make known, that there is one seated on David's throne who has imputed his righteousness and paid the debt of even the most guilty. And from his throne, he proclaims mercy for the worst of us who would but trust in him. And that's, that's the beauty 
of those thrones set up. The text ends with an exhortation to the sojourning people of God. It says in verse 6, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, this pray for the peace of Jerusalem that's often seen or interpreted in political terms about modern Jerusalem or in references in reference to someone's belief about the progression of the end times. But I just want you to imagine this morning that praying for the peace of Jerusalem could in reality mean something so much more than that. Consistently, I've seen parallels that I've tried to point out to you between the the, uh, the the Jews of old and the church in this psalm. And I see that here also. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem should serve for you and I who are partaking of the new covenant. It should serve for you and I as an encouragement to pray for the church, both the local church and the church around the world. We should pray for the church's effectiveness in preaching and evangelism, um, its increasing holiness, its peace, its harmony, its unity. We should pray for her to be protected from every scheme of the enemy and that her leaders would walk in wisdom and integrity. And we should pray for the blessing of each other. And David says, may they be secure who loves you. I stumbled across this quote in in my studies this week. Puritan John Stoughton said, they that, that pray not for the church of God, love not the church of God. Isn't that good? Once again, David emphasizes the corporate nature of God's church when he says that for my brothers and uh, and my companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. The reason I pray for the church is for my brothers and my companions' sake. I want the church to prosper and be blessed because I want this church that God's called me to to be a great benefit to you. Some churches that we're maybe familiar with have become theaters of entertainment in order to soften the blow of the gospel and its demands. Others have become corporations that are sterile and only exist to give some people like me a job and others a tax write-off. Still others are shrines to religious duty where people are shamed into compliance. My hope is that Northridge will be a life-giving center to all who call it home that you will be drawn closer to Christ as we worship together, that you will hear his commands and comforts as I preach to you, that you will experience his presence at the table, that you will know a burden-bearing community here when you face really difficult times. So I'm asking, this is my appeal, this is my application Will you join me for praying for these things at Northridge Life Church? But David goes on to say, For the sake of the house of the, uh, of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. He's already said that he, he wants peace for, the, for Jerusalem, for the church, because of, of his brothers and his commandments. But now he says, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God. He's saying that he will pray for the peace of the church and seek its good because this church does not belong to this people. It doesn't belong to this person 
This church belongs to the Lord our God, and it matters to him. Oh, that we could just see the church as Jesus sees it. To us, sometimes church and being in attendance and maybe serving, you know, cleaning, doing lawn care like Pastor David was talking about, it may just seem like a religious necessity. And and sometimes this church may be filled with religious people that just get on your nerves. But to Jesus, this church and, and his church around the world is his beautiful bride. It is his body who is present in the world. It's speaking and touching and listening. And, and, and among us all, it is his dwelling place. It is his glorious temple where he's chosen to live forever and ever. Amen. So I hope, I hope that you will look at your association with the church, with the body of Christ, and say, I was glad, whoever it was, whenever it was, I was glad that they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And that you've been included in that happy tribe that's going up to the heavenly Jerusalem to bring your worship and bring your praise among others who are bringing their worship and their praise with whom you will share all of eternity. If you would stand with me, we're going to do something completely different today. And I want to be honest with you. Some of you might uh, go, oh man, I, I really don't want to do that. But I've got, I've, I've, I have a, a method in my madness here. We're going to, instead of having you come forward and take the elements of communion and return to your, um, to your seat, I'm going to ask every single one of you that, that it, first of all, as a believer, we need, we need you to be a believer and that, that um, is, is physically able to do this. I'm going to ask you to just come up here and gather, and, and let's try in this open area to make one big circle. And, and in the spirit of unity of the body of Christ, we're going to serve each other communion today. So if you would just go ahead and come on and take your place, um, we'll get started. But uh, uh, yeah, come join me down front, and um, everyone that's able, and uh, let's, let's join together. One of the great symbols of the Lord's Supper is this, that we I spent the last however long uh, trying to point out to you how that Christ died to unify a body from many members, to build a kingdom from many subjects. And one of the uniqueness things is that the, the key to us being united into one body was his brokenness, that, that him being broken meant us being united. Him, his blood being poured out, meaning that his royal blood courses through all of our our uh, veins, resulting in forgiveness and resulting in grace and resulting in in uh, the the fullness of the Holy Spirit and overcoming power. And so, as you stand here united on on the floor with your brothers and sisters in Christ, remember that that you know Eddie's life is not separate from mine. The, the people around you, their lives are not separate from you. Because of what Jesus has done, that which was broken has been made, been made one and one forever. The city is firmly bound together. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. And so uh, I will remind you that Paul said on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread 
And after breaking it, he blessed it and said, this is my body, take it and eat it. Let's, let's take it together. Likewise, also, he took the cup and after blessing it, said, this is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for you. Let's take the cup together. And he reminded us, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come. And so we are so glad that we can, together with this group of people, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. You are dismissed. Alexa, I've got to give you a benediction, don't I? It's up here, so let me do that. We'll, we'll, we'll wind up with that. See, you throw the preacher's rhythm off and everything goes yeah, straight down the pipe, so... If you would place your hands in a receiving position, turn and face me. Uh, place your hands in a receiving position. I, uh, I, I selected this benediction for this very moment in this, in this uh, time of encouraging each other. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, In the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.